If you've got a Bible, we're in John 1 tonight. We're going to read verses 29. It should say th- through verse 36. Um, but, uh, uh, of course, one verse doesn't make a, too big of a difference, but it does for the sake of tonight's message. So we're going to read uh, those few verses in just a few minutes. Um, we are trotting our way through uh, John chapter 1. I promise it'll go a little faster once we get through this first chapter. But this first chapter, as we've studied, is pretty pretty big, and it's got a lot of awesome and rich truths in it. Um, and, and just to remind you, uh, before I move on too quickly, if you want to put a marker in Romans 5, we're going to turn there at the end of our time um, just to, uh, to listen to what Paul has to say um, regarding this uh, subject that we're going to be studying here in John 1. Um, but again, we are in week three of this study that we're calling Undeniable. This uh, is called Undeniable because we believe that John is writing to us uh, from the place that, hey, I uh, became a follower of Jesus. I was there from day one. And I was, uh, I was convinced, and it was uh, undeniable uh, that Jesus is and always will be um, the living Son of God, God in a body, God in flesh, the Word of God made flesh. He says, I was fully convinced. I can answer all your questions. I can't, you know, entertain every, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what if and how about that and how do you explain that? John just says, all I know is I followed him from day one and I was convinced thoroughly and I have full confidence and certainty that Jesus Christ absolutely is God in Flesh, and we've studied a little bit um, about what that means, and and, and how John kind of came to this place, um, and and we've covered a lot so far in the first twenty eight verses. Um, we spent week one talking about how John um, understood Jesus and knew Jesus as the eternal Word of God. And then we spent last time talking about how Jesus is the divine blessing from God. And these are not just light, um, kind of thrown together word, words or subjects or, or, or titles. Um, this is a big deal because this really pulls from the Old Testament Judaism and the Old Testament Jewish traditions and really speaks to the entire world that was the way they understood um, the divine and the way even the Greeks understood or thought that the gods were and, and how they existed and how the universe existed. Um, these two titles that he gives to Jesus and these two ideas that we pulled from this chapter are pretty, uh, pretty b- uh, big foundations in kind of establishing Jesus as God in flesh. And, and, and John, um, we learn from the first few verses, John is thoroughly convinced To him, it was undeniable that Jesus was and is the uh, God's ultimate and definitive message. That's what it means when John says that the Word became flesh, that God had a final, ultimate, definitive Word that He wanted to share with the world, that it explained everything that He had said previously, and it would speak forever and ever and ever, and He would go into full detail about what it meant. But John believes, and John puts Jesus up as the final, the full, the ultimate, the definitive, the authoritative Word from God. That if God had an absolute single message, it would be Jesus. We spoke about this. If you were to put all the words of God in a word cloud or in a word picture, right? In one of those generators that spit out an image that took all the words and combined them. If you were to put all the words of God, old and new, into a word generator, you would have Jesus as the image that would be presented. And Jesus is not just an image, though, right? He is a living being. He is God in flesh. 
And this really speaks to any culture. John hoping to speak to both Jews and Greeks with this prologue. The idea of the logos, the word where he he uses that that phrase, the word became flesh. The idea of the logos, which is the Greek word for word, um, being something the Greeks would have been super intrigued by. The Greeks believed that the universe was uh, was kind of held together by, and the the universe was made up by the logos of the gods, or the ideas and the essence and the mind of the gods. And the idea that John says, yes, that you're a little bit there. You're almost there, but it's not the gods. It's one single God, and the God of the universe, the God whose words made up the universe, the God whose essence and mind and heart is the, 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 the spirit that we move and live and have our being through. That God became flesh, and His name is Jesus. But the second thing, the divine blessing was very much a Jewish concept. And we spoke about this, how how John says that we receive from him grace upon grace or grace from the ultimate source of grace, capital G grace. And we spoke about how that was not an insignificant um, reference either. Um, the, the, this idea of the divine blessing is something that the Jews were constantly chasing after in the Old Testament. We spent much of our time a couple of weeks ago chronicling that, that, that desire for the blessing. If you remember, Abraham was told, you're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you and you'll be a blessing to the whole world, right? And we talked about how his descendants were always chasing after and fighting for and coveting that blessing from God. The Old Testament, really the whole Bible, chronicles the quest of humanity to obtain and maintain favor and blessing, this grace from God. The divine blessing, it was cut off by the fall. It was put off by the law, but it was brought back for good forever by Jesus. The divine power, divine favor from God that brings an anointing and makes a distinct difference in every recipient. Both of these things, the eternal word, the divine blessing, are threads that loom heavy and influence John's entire narrative. But there's another stone that if, if John is building a foundation that is three-fold, three, uh, or if he's using three stones or three pillars to build this foundation, there's another foundation, there's another topic that we are going to dive in deep tonight. Um, and, and, and you'll probably, you probably can uh, anticipate it based on what verse 29 is, uh, says and what verse 36 says. But the, ne- the third foundation, the fir- third pillar of John's gospel is that Jesus is the worthy Lamb of God. So he's the Word, he's the blessing, and he's the Lamb. He's the Word of God that created all things and that holds together all things that became flesh. He's the blessing that all people have always chased after and longed for and sought for and coveted. He's the anointing favor of God that we all want and desire and so desperately need. He's the Word of God. He's the blessing from God, but He is also. And this is so important because if He's not this, the other two will never make an impact or a difference on us. If He's not this, then we never experience the first two. He's the worthy Lamb of God. After all, that's who John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world as. Now, the disciple John, he's kind of writing this in retrospect as he's writing his prologue. He presents Jesus as these, in these two high and lofty ideals. He's the Word of God. He's the blessing from God. But John the Baptist, as the narrative begins there around verse number 19, as the narrative begins, John the Baptist introduces him in this very to-the-point Way. So let's uh, read how John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world. The next day, verse 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to the, toward him and said, Behold, or again, look, 
So this is John, the apostle's way of, getting, of introducing us to Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. So John's already told us he's the Word of God, he's the grace, the blessing of God, but now he wants to, get it, to give us a close-up view of who Jesus is. And he's almost like saying, I know that don't get lost in the weeds of the Word and the blessing and those really high concepts. Don't get lost in the weeds, because this is what matters, maybe even most. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away, who takes away the sin of the world. That's a big deal. Because this, listen, the Messiah of Israel, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who was going to help Israel, save Israel, restore Israel, exalt Israel. But John says, no, 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 no. This is not just an Israel thing. This is not just a Jewish thing. This is a global thing. Because remember, this is the God of the universe becoming flesh. This is the anointing everyone has ever been in need of. And that God, the Word, the favor from heaven has become flesh. And look at Him. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. But this text goes on. John says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. So that's John the Baptist kind of calling back to what we've read so far in John's gospel. This is the one who is before all things. I did not know him. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John says, Crazy thing. I didn't know who this guy was. I was just convinced by God that I ought to prepare a way for this Messiah who was going to show up one day. And when I saw him, I knew exactly who he was. John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. That'll be important for the latter part. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining. That's a big deal. Remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Word of God, the favor from God, the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with his two disciples. Now, one of these disciples was John, and one of them was Andrew, Peter's brother. So we, we know that from the, kind of the context in the story. So John, the apostle, and Andrew, the brother of Peter, are standing there with John. And looking at Jesus as he walked, because he's passing back by, once again, John the Baptist and John the writer feels it important to make sure we know who Jesus is. He says, look! Now, who is he? The Lamb of God, it seems like John is wanting us to understand who Jesus is and what his maybe most important title is when it comes to how me and you fit into this story. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Now, it is as if John the disciple wants us to know that the Lamb of God is essential in the world coming to know Jesus the Word and Jesus the Blessing. But why Lamb? Why not lion? Sounds a little more regal, doesn't it? A little more, you know, catchy and flashy. I mean, it wasn't the Messiah supposed to, predicted to be uh, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, ne- you'll never find an Old Testament prediction that the Messiah was going to be a lamb. But there are plenty that refers to the Messiah as the lion. 
as a warrior. I mean, you don't have to use an animal, do you, right? Why can't we have another title that is more, you know, kind of fitting for a Messiah, for a king, for a savior? But maybe lamb is absolutely the most appropriate title for those things. The title is accompanied by a description, the Lamb of God, who has a very specific mission. He is coming to take away the sin of the world. Now notice it's not the sins of the world. He's not talking about the individual specific actions and deeds that you and I commit that are an offense to God, not that those things aren't uh, included in this idea. He's also not referring to the sin of Israel. He's referring to the sin of the world. It's deeper and bigger than individual offenses and wrongs and failures. This isn't it. This is something that encompasses all the things that you and I do and anyone else has ever done wrong. All of evil itself. But the sin refers to the thing that separates people and God. The one thing that has cut off people from blessing. The one thing that has made us blind to the Word from God. The one thing that has blinded and cloaked and deceived all people. The sin, the Lamb, has come to take away that sin. Now, we'll go deeper into that later, but instantly the Jewish audience would have knew what John was getting at. Lambs and sin go together like meat and potatoes or fish and water or whatever two things that go together, like uh, whatever you want to picture there, right? Lambs and sin in the Jewish context were a combination that were always associated with one another. So they would have knew what John was talking about, but they didn't really understand why John was talking about a Messiah in that same conversation. Now, follow me here. We have Jesus... He's the better word. He's the open blessing. right. He's the word that is complete contrasted to the Old Testament. He's the blessing that we actually have access to contrasted to the Old Testament. And now we have Jesus the Lamb who could do what no other lamb had been able to do, wash away our sin, and not just our sin, but say it with me, all sin. It's a pretty big claim to make. Right? That's a pretty big chunk to bite off unless you're able to handle it. Now, notice another trend here, though. John had already pivoted away from Moses, saying that Jesus came with grace and truth compared to Moses who came with law. There's more of that same idea. All this hinges around the new that Jesus came to install. So remember, three things. Word, blessing, or favor. Word, blessing, and lamb. Now, the Old Testament is full of words and all about a blessing and full of lambs. But the one thing, the one trend that we see when we talk about those things in the Old Testament, the old word was unfinished. The old word did not offer a true insight or true solution to our sin and a true pathway to God. The old word was unfinished. It gave us a lot of hope, but it didn't give a lot of confidence in actually how those things would actually be accomplished or rolled out. The old word was unfinished. The old blessing was unobtainable. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, they chase after that blessing and they always get so close and they always think they're going to get it. And even after a while of prosperity, they always fall short and they always seem to go back to to a place where the blessing is not on them or the favor is not on them. The old word was unfinished and the old blessing was unobtainable. And they always talked about it and prayed for it, but they never got it. In the old lambs, as in all the lambs that were slain in the Old Testament... They were incapable of taking away sin. So you see what John's doing here, don't you? Because they all know about the Word and the blessing and the Lamb, but the old Word, it was unfinished. The old blessing, it was unobtainable. And the old lambs, they were incapable. But enter Jesus. 
Jesus added His Word. He made favor accessible and He made atonement for sin. So He comes with a new Word and it's better than the old Word. He comes with a new blessing and it's accessible not as the other one wasn't. He comes with a new way. A new, uh, he comes as the new Lamb to atone whereas the old lambs could not. It's pretty good, isn't it? John's pretty smart. And he has instructed us in a pretty good direction tonight. So, tonight is all about this new lamb. And when you have a new lamb, you got a new covenant. Because lambs and covenants go hand in hand, just like lambs and sin. And covenants always involve lambs. This is so big. We've covered this before in different times and different seasons, maybe around Easter in the past, but I think it's important and worthy of going over again. A new covenant, as in the old covenant, is going to be replaced. Now, Jesus and, and, and John, and the, John does not bring this up lightly. I mean, when a Jew starts talking about a new covenant and starts alluding to a new covenant, that's a pretty big deal because they had a big covenant with God. Right? They had multiple covenants with God, but one of them loomed over. The Mosaic Covenant, the, what we call the Old Covenant, it loomed over and it held the nation together. Really, it was, the nation was falling apart, but they all hold, held on to that Old Covenant. I mean, you don't bring up a new covenant around the Jewish people at this time period, and you don't, so you don't say that lightly. I mean, that's a big deal if you're mentioning, hey, we got a new covenant, and this is the new lamb, and he's going to do a new thing. That would have made the hair stand up on the back of a believer's neck. Maybe that's a good thing. Now, just to talk about covenant, covenant is a fancy word for promise. But covenant, you could almost refer to as a contract or a contractual promise. Of course, you would hope that a contract would include a promise. But a covenant is an agreement with terms and conditions. Now, that's pretty much like a contract, right? You uh, come to an agreement around a certain term, certain conditions, and you say, hey, I'm in, and someone else says, I'm in, and you have a covenant. You have a promise. Now, all religions were based on and are based on covenants. But in the old days and even in the new day, in, the, in our era, business Businesses are based on covenants. Jobs are based on covenants. Relationships and marriages are based on covenants and other things. Uh, but this is something that every people group in the ancient world would have understood. And I want to talk about the different kinds of covenants because it's very important because we see all kinds in the Bible. Um, there are a few kinds of covenants in the ancient world. And here's something that we need to establish about covenants, though, before we go any deeper. And you all know this. But all covenants were set in order by sacrifice. All covenants were set in order um, by raising the stakes appropriately high um, to make sure that the, each party or each member of the covenant uh, were, were serious about what they were getting into. Um, something had to die in order to ratify a covenant. You hear that? Something, hopefully not you, but something had to die to, uh, to ratify and establish a covenant. Covenants were sealed and established with blood. And by doing the sacrifice, it was as if you were saying, may it be unto me as the sacrificed animal if I failed to keep my part of the deal. When you got married, when you took a job, when you entered some sort of religious vow, you were saying, if I fail to keep my part of the deal, you have the right and the legality to take my life or to take someone's life in my place. Now, a couple of different kinds of covenants. Let's go over the uh, couple. One of the covenants that we see in the Bible a lot is called a mutual covenant. There's a lot of fancier names for these things, but we're English-speaking uh, Southern Americans, so I don't want to confuse us. I'm not insulting y'all. I'm talking about me. So I wanted to keep this in a, in a, in a 
you know, my grade level conversation. You can go and research all these and you'll have really fancy Latin words in front of covenant. I want to talk about this in a way that we can remember it so and actually benefit from it. So mutual covenant, that's the name I'm going to give it. It's got a fancy name, but let's talk about it in the, the context of a mutual covenant. Pretty much is what it sounds like. A mutual covenant is a covenant between two equals. Emphasis on the equal. Um, a mutual covenant is if, if me and you were to say, okay, listen, we're going to make an agreement that this land is uh, fixed between us, that nobody, that we don't really know who owns it, but we're going to just claim it for ourselves. Um, and this is kind of an Old Testament problem. They would Two tribes would meet to each other, and they would argue over which who owned the land between them. And they would basically say, okay, we're going to have a mutual agreement that we're going to share this land, or you get it during this season, I get it during this season, you can do this on it, I can do this on it, but you know what, we want to make sure that we kind of establish the agreement. Now, there are other, other mutual covenants that you could make an example out of, but um, in the Bible, if you read Genesis 21, you'll see a covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. Uh, if you read um, Genesis 34, you'll see a covenant between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. Um, and if you read uh, uh, 1 Samuel 18, you'll see a covenant between David and Jonathan. And pretty much they're handshake deals that involve sacrifices usually, but they're handshake deals that usually involve two equals saying, hey, I promise you this, you promise me that, let's walk away and make sure that we help each other out. Those are not as high stake, though, as the next two kind of covenants, or this next kind of covenant. Um, the more frequent kind of covenant in the Old Testament are what we call conditional covenants. And they're usually between masters and servants, or superiors and inferiors, kings and subjects, higher powers making demands of lower powers for the sake of the lower. Some business deals and relationships are based on these. Um, marriage really uh, was a conditional covenant between men um, who had all the power over women in this day and age. Lower subjects have to keep the higher subjects happy in order to keep themselves fed, safe, or alive. This was basically the kind of agreement that all civilizations in the ancient world believed they had with their gods. And this is the kind of covenant that the Jews had with Yahweh. This is the kind of covenant that was established under Moses that we call the Old Covenant that they called the Mosaic Covenant. And it went something like this. If we do A, then God will do B. If we don't do X, then God won't let Y happen. So if we continue to bring things to God's house, God will make sure that He brings things to our house. If we refuse to sin, then God won't bring invasion. That's how they thought. That's how the ancient world worked. That's how conditional covenants with God worked. If we obey, He'll protect. If we disobey, He'll destroy. That's how the ancient world viewed God or the gods. This is the cycle of the Old Testament over and over and over again. And maybe you know this or maybe you don't know this, but the sacrificial system was never a means of, a, of atoning for sin when they didn't keep their part of the deal. Because you'll know in the Old Testament, when God gives them the covenant, there's also a whole book called Leviticus, which is about when you mess up, Here's what you should do, right? That you can go read it. And here's an offering for Monday. Here's an offering for Tuesday. Here's a fellowship offering. Here's a, uh, uh, you know, for, uh, a harvest offering. Here's an offering to do that's a trespass offering. Here's a, you know, they had all these different ideas and different ways of making right when they did wrong. But all over the Old Testament and New Testament, there is this confession and this admission that the blood of bulls and sheep and goats were never thought to take away anybody's sin. In fact, 
The Jews knew. They all knew when they were going to the temple to sacrifice animals, it was just their way of pushing the penalty off for somebody else to deal with. And they weren't ashamed about it. It was almost like they'd walk out of the temple rubbing their hands together like, well, we got away with another one. And literally, they had an entire day of the year, the Day of Atonement, where they would lay hands on a goat and they would pray over it and they would you know, symbolically put all the sins on the goat. They would take it outside and they would... They didn't do this, but I would have. I would have it. They would light its tail on fire. <laughs> they would say, get out of here. And the goat would run and run and run and run. And when they saw it past the last hill over the horizon, they would blow a trumpet and they would say, Whew, we got away for one more year. Because they knew. How are we getting by with all this sin when God said, if you don't, I won't. But hey, we have it and He's still doing it. He's still God. He still loves us. And we're still getting by with this. They would lay hands on the goat every year. They would turn it loose. They would see it run away. And they would think, God in His mercy did not require death upon sin. But the conditional covenant, remember, it's all about if I don't keep my part of the deal, something's got to happen. Right? It's going to be done to me as it was to the animal that struck this deal. But they would over and over again bring animals. They would barter with God. Okay, God, I know, I know, I know. We, I know this has already been set in motion. I know that we're supposed to die, but we're going to lay this animal on this altar and we're going to hope that you punish the animal instead of us. Please. But ultimately, they were just piling the debt for somebody else's generation to pay for. And one of the ancient confessions, the confession that Jews would often recite at, at, at temple and at services is this. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Wink, wink, God. We hope that you're all this, but we actually believe you are. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Come on, we're not fooling anybody. God, we know that we're not, these sacrifices we're doing are, no, are by no means clearing our guilt. I mean, you're, you're not pulling a fast one on you. We know that none of this is actually washing away our sins. And think about the brazenness that they would, when they would confess this. But you're going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children in the third and fourth generation. It was their, their way of saying, I guess our kids are going to have to pay for it. Maybe our grandkids, maybe our great-grandkids, but we don't live that long anymore, so not our skin. I mean, come on, you know. They were pretty... Bold, weren't they? But they were all thinking, this can't last. I mean, we all know that it's God's mercy and it's greater than our sin, so we guess He'll figure out what to do with all the sin that's piling up. But we sure aren't able to fix it. And that's what leads us to the third kind of covenant. The unconditional covenant. But these are rare. Very rare. And you know why they're rare. Why would anyone make a covenant wherein they aren't guaranteed to profit or at least break even? Who makes a covenant out of pure goodwill? An unconditional covenant is almost unbelievable because why would I say to you, listen, it's all on me, it's not on you. If you blow it, I'm still in. If you mess up, I'm still going to keep my part of the deal. If you walk away, I'm still here. If you leave, I'm not leaving. If you hurt me, I'm not hurting you. If you disobey, I'm not going to disobey. I'm not going to break the blessing. Who would make that kind of deal with people? 
I mean, no two equals are going to make that kind of deal. And what God in any universe would make that deal with people? You don't work for free, do you? You don't agree to be in a relationship with somebody that's going to, be, that's going to just take advantage and use you or overlook you and substitute you? No one in their right mind would agree to an unconditional covenant. I mean, even if somebody offers you an agreement or a covenant with, with proposed unconditional terms, you would think, this is just too good to be true. Isn't it? But would you believe the original covenant God made with Israel was not a conditional covenant at all, but it was actually an unconditional covenant that would outlast the Mosaic covenant and would one day be realized under Jesus. When he picked a random guy out of another country and started over with after Noah and the ark, and that didn't go the way it thought it would go, to build towards saving the whole world. God covered a covenant with a guy. There's something, that's some, there's something we may have missed before. God himself showed up to Abram. Apart from using a priest or a stand-in like he would later in the Old Testament, God made a promise to Abram that he would make a great nation out of him through whom the whole world would be saved and blessed. God asked Abraham to just trust his plan, have faith in my ability. And Abraham's thinking, wow, this is too good to be true, God. I mean, where where, where am I going to have to pay or where am I going to have to sign up for something? Remember the story. Abraham believed the Lord. He counted it to him as righteousness. So in in the act of faith, God said to Abraham, you are justified by faith in my promise to you. You have nothing to do with this. But Abraham still thought, well, you know what? We've got to make it. We've got to make this official God. So Abraham um, did what you would do in that day. Abraham laid out some animals and they cut the animals in half. He laid out a, 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 a bird and laid out some other animals. And they cut these animals in half. And as were custom, you would lay the animal um, on both sides of an altar. And then you would walk through between the animals. And then the other party would walk through. And then you would shake hands and you would say, Okay, listen, if I break my part of the deal, it's on me. If you break your part, it's on you. But it, until then, we've we got a deal. But if you remember how this story went... Whereas Abraham thought it would be conditional, God made it clear it would be unconditional. Genesis 15, 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Because verse 17 says this, When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, but Abram did not pass through the pieces. He woke up from the dream and he looked around and he didn't hear God's voice anymore. He didn't see the fire anymore. And he thought, wow, I guess I missed out. But God had passed through the pieces. And God had made a promise to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I am going to keep my part of the deal. This isn't on you. It's all on me. So all Abraham did was believe, and God had promised that he would absolutely keep his deal. And and 2,000 years later, John introduces Jesus to the world and says, the old covenant, Exodus to Malachi, that is over. But we're actually going to finish off what God promised to Abraham in in the first place. This is a new covenant based on what God is going to do. The old covenant was based on do's and don'ts. The new covenant is going to be based on done. As in God's going to do something, He's going to finish it, and it's going to be on the table for whoever wants it. The old covenant held sin over our heads, but the new covenant takes away the sins of the whole 
world by offering unlimited grace, unconditional forgiveness. The sin that began in Eden that God promised He would send a Savior to overcome would be taken away by the Lamb. Remember, God said to the serpent in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, but your head's going to be smashed and his heel, just, his heel is just going to be bruised and he's going to win. And the sin is going to be taken away. And in that moment, Adam listened. And he believed that God would actually do this. And in obedience, he named or he called his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all living. And the Lord God saw Adam's fate and he made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. This is so good. Remember what God told Adam and Eve? If you sin, you will die, right? Remember that? If you sin, you'll die. Remember how all the old covenant was about pushing the debt forward. The Jews were like, I guess we're going to just push this forward. We hope somebody's going to pay for it, but we're not. You know who the first one to push the debt forward was? God. Adam and Eve right there in front of them. They sinned. And God himself said, if they sinned, what was he going to do to them? Kill them. He pushed the debt forward. And the angels in heaven said, who's going to clean that mess up, God? Every generation of sinners upon sinners upon sinners, after Noah, after Abraham, after Moses, after all the world, the angels kept saying, God, who's going to clean the mess up? You keep pushing it forward. Who's going to clean it up? And John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. Look, the Lamb of God who's finally going to do it. He's going to clean up the mess. Isn't that awesome? This isn't, this isn't just about paying for sin. It's about God getting out of the way anything that's keeping us from Him. God removing any barrier that separates you and me. God had told Abraham in chapter 15, verse 1, I am your shield, and your reward is going to be very great. God told Abraham, I am going to remove anything that gets in between me and you and me and anybody that I love. You just believe, you just watch, and you just see. And the Lamb of God showed up to take away the sin that was in between us and God. For God so loved that He did whatever it took to save us. The dying lamb took away the sin of the world. But remember, he wasn't just a lamb. The dying lamb was taken under by sin, but hell and the grave were torn asunder by the resurrecting lion. 
Because yes, he was the Lamb of God, but when he, when the gray, when 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 Jesus died under the weight of sin, his eyes roared open with flaming fire in the depths of hell, and he tore the grave wide open and rose a roaring, a resurrecting lion, the Messiah of God. And that's where this wraps back around to the blessing that we have available and accessible through Jesus. There's no outstanding debt or accusing law anymore because in heaven the Lamb who was slain has been raised to a higher place, the highest place. The Apostle John, he gets to see a vision later in life when he's exiled and brokenhearted at the condition of the world. Here's what John saw. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and heal and save the earth or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What's he conquered? Hell, death, the grave has conquered. And so he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And John says, Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw not a lion, but a lamb as though he had been slain, standing... The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. And guess what? Took away means it's gone forever. Sin no longer stands between us and God. Sin no longer stands between us and grace. We won't look at that Scripture in Romans just for time, but the Scripture says over in Romans that we have been reconciled through the death of Jesus that the sin of Adam that cursed everyone was undone by the victory of Jesus. And as the sin of Adam cursed all, the victory of Jesus blessed all. Does that make sense? As the sin of Adam took everybody under, the victory of Jesus rose everybody up. As Adam's sin took everybody into sin, Jesus' victory brought everybody and brought grace to everybody. Brought everybody up and blessed everybody with the precious and amazing grace of God. That's the distinction that John makes here when, he, when John says the one the Spirit of God remains on. Unlike the Old Testament where the Spirit would only temporarily be here or there, the Spirit remained on Jesus so that we also could know it will remain and He will remain on us. Because our sin has been washed away, the Spirit of God will stay. No single sin is going to undo the sacrifice that Jesus made. The promise of the Holy Spirit. We are continually replenished by His grace. All that's possible because of the accomplished and finished work of Jesus. And that's why John bookends this section with this praise, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And that's our point of praise tonight, Christian, that we should sing about and rejoice around and rally around. And when somebody asks you, who is Jesus? You can confidently tell them He's the eternal Word. He's the divine blessing. But most of all to me, He's the worthy Lamb who takes away yours. Mine and the world's. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away your sin? I got it even better. What has washed away our sin? Nothing but. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, 
There are times when your word and your spirit and your gospel is too good for us. But that's why there's hope. Because in light of our sin, in light of our shame, you're still good. You're better. You're a better word. You're a better blessing. You are the ultimate lamb of God. Father, I just want to stand back and just be silent in all of you tonight. Maybe somebody else wants to come forward and just lay at your altar and just say, wow, God, I'm so thankful. Father, as we just pause and reflect upon who you are, who Jesus was, the Lamb of God who took away the sin that was piled up for ages and ages and ages that you promised you would clean up. And you didn't ask anybody else to do it. You did it yourself. How amazing. How amazing.